You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So if you were walking just outside here on the sidewalk, headed west on Summit, just as you crossed over Saratoga, if you were to look up at the corner, the, the top corner of our building right here outside, you would notice that there's a statue of a man who is bald, He has a long beard, and he's holding a parchment, okay? It's a statue of the Apostle Paul, all right? Just outside here on our building, you can check it out after the service. I mention that because in this sermon, what I'd like to do is I want to tell you part of the story for why that statue is there, okay? And when I say there, what I mean is here, In the middle of North America, a very, 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 very long ways from Jerusalem. There's a story behind this, right? There's a story behind this, and a big part of that story has to do with Galatians chapter 2, which is our passage for today. You just heard verses 1 to 14. And when it comes to the the outline of this sermon, it it is super Simple. All right, there's just two parts we're looking at. First, we're going to look at what is happening here in Galatians 2. This is this hand, what is happening. And then we're going to look at why does it matter for us? Two parts. What's happening here and why does it matter? Okay, let's ask for God's help one more time before we dig in. Father in heaven, amen to what has been prayed to what has been sung, to the truths that we have already been reminded of so far this morning. And now, in this moment, we ask that through the preaching of your word, make your glory be known and delighted in. We ask that by your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see and to receive what it is you have for us this morning in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what is happening right here? What is happening here in Galatians chapter 2? Well, the big event comes in verses 11 to 14. But in order for us to understand that, we need to back up a minute and take a look at this thing as a whole. Okay, what's happening here as a whole overall? And I, I think... What could help us see what's going on is to break it down into three steps. So when it comes to what's happening, there are three steps we're going to look at. First is the context. Second is the conflict. And then third is the confrontation. And when it comes to the context here, it's going to be in verse 1. That's where we're going to start. But I want to mention before we get going here, this is kind of a long story, okay? It's a long passage, it's a long story, but there are throughout this story some high drama moments that I don't want you to miss. And so to help us stay on track as I tell this story, there's going to be certain points when I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask you if you're tracking, okay? And so when I do that, when I say, hey, are you tracking, I want you to like, you know, nod or something or, or, or say okay or give me a thumbs up because if you don't do that, I'll have to back up and say it all over again, and it's going to take like three or four hours, okay? So, uh, so when I say, are you tracking? I'm looking for, to see if you are, okay? Um, now, with that said, look at verse 1, okay? Verse 1, this is part of Paul's autobiography. 
he says there, then after 14 years, he's talking about 14 years after he converted to Christianity, after he became a Christian. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is the setting here. That's where Paul is at. And remember from last week, this was only the second time that Paul had been to Jerusalem since he became a Christian. And the reason that Paul was there was to meet with the other apostles to confirm that he and they were preaching the same gospel. Are you tracking? All right, that was a test. That's pretty good, okay? Now, in terms of the apostles, who, who are the apostles? Let me remind you who these guys are. The word apostle literally means messenger. And these men are the official messengers of Jesus. They were the disciples of Jesus, minus Judas, plus James, Jesus' brother, and plus Matthias. Now you'll notice in the passage that Paul, he calls Peter Cephas several times. Why, 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 what is that? Why does he do that? Well, it's simply because Cephas is the Aramaic way of saying Peter. Both names, Cephas and Peter, is the same name. They both mean the same thing. It means rock. That was the name that Jesus had given Peter, remember? So you'll see here, um, one thing really important about these apostles, Peter and all the others, is that these were all men who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, which means that after Jesus was raised, these were men who ate and drank and spent time with him. These were men, these were the men, these eyewitnesses of the resurrection, these were the men that God chose to be the apostles of Jesus and to go preach the gospel, which they did and which we can read about in the book of Acts. Well, now Paul was also an apostle. Because he also, Paul also had witnessed the resurrected Jesus, although he did it in a different way. Paul didn't eat and drink with Jesus after his resurrection. Because at first, remember, Paul hated Jesus. Paul was against the gospel. But then Jesus, the the resurrected and ascended Jesus, he appeared to Paul and he changed his heart on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Jesus had a come-to-Jesus moment with Paul, literally, right? And it changed everything. And him being changed, God also chose Paul to be an apostle of Jesus and to go preach the gospel, which he also did, and which we can also read about in the Gospel of Acts. So these men are the apostles. Are you tracking? Good. Now, Remember, all of these men, all of these apostles were Jewish. They were Jewish men, which means they had always been taught that faithfulness to God meant that they keep Jewish law. In order to be part of the people of God, in order to be right with God, you expressed your faith through abiding by Jewish laws and customs. It meant that you abided by kosher food laws. You do not eat unclean meat and you do not hang out with unclean people such as any non-Jewish person, a.k.a. Gentiles. You You do not hang out with Gentiles. That was the Jewish mindset that these men had been steeped in their entire lives. But see, the gospel of Jesus says something different. 
The gospel of Jesus says that faith in Jesus plus nothing else is what saves you. And that goes for Jewish people and Gentile people. You don't have to keep a certain law. You don't have to perform a certain way. You don't have to belong to a certain ethnic group to be right with God. You are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had been preaching that message because that's what Jesus told him. So he had been preaching that message and now Paul has come to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles to make sure that they were preaching the same thing. And guess what? They were. They were preaching the same message. That's the central point here of verses 1 to 10. That's the main point of Paul's time in Jerusalem. It's so that we know, we're supposed to know that Paul and the other apostles, all of the apostles are preaching the same gospel. And one of the ways that we see the unity they have on the gospel, one of the ways we see their unity on the message of the gospel is how they handle the false brothers in verse 4. Look at verse 4 and these false brothers. Here's what happened. While Paul and the other apostles were convening about the gospel and what they preached, somehow false brothers secretly slipped into their gathering. Now these false brothers were not apostles. They were not Christians. They were false. They were, they were counterfeit Christians. They, they were the troublers that Paul mentions in chapter 1, verse 7. And the trouble that they caused is that they were going around saying that the apostles had the gospel wrong. They were contradicting the apostles. The troublers were false teachers. And they were saying that you did have to keep Jewish law in order to be saved. And they weren't just saying that theoretically, but they were pointing at Titus. Because remember, Titus was with Paul, and Titus was Greek, which means he was a Gentile. And so these false teachers were calling for his circumcision. Could, could you imagine the tension in the room? They, they were demanding that Titus be circumcised. They were saying that Titus is not really in. He's not really saved unless he is circumcised and becomes like a Jewish man. And they were saying this against all that the apostles have been saying. And so all the apostles unite in their rejection of this false teaching. The apostles united and they all said no to that false teaching. That's verse 5. To them, the false teachers, we, the apostles, did not yield in submission even for a moment. And that's the point of verses 1 to 10. The whole point of the context here, which is important, the whole point of the context is that we know that Paul and the other apostles, namely Paul and Peter, Paul and Peter and all the apostles are united on the gospel. The gospel that they believe and preach is that you are saved by faith in Jesus plus nothing else. Peter preached that gospel. Paul preached that gospel. They both preached the same gospel. Are you tracking? Okay. Now, that context 
is what leads to the conflict in verse 11. The conflict takes place in Antioch. So we started in Jerusalem, and now we're in Antioch. And Antioch it was a majority Gentile city. It's in what is today the southern part of Turkey. It's about a 10-hour drive directly north from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay? Now, now Paul and Barnabas have been in Antioch. They've been preaching the gospel to Gentiles in Antioch, and Peter visits. Now, we don't know how often Peter visited Antioch. But he apparently had been there enough times or a long enough time to develop the habit of eating with Gentile Christians there. Now, if you read any commentary, the, the scholars have a word for this. It's called table fellowship. Peter had table fellowship with Gentile Christians. It means he just hung out with them. He spent time with them. Peter ate and drank with Gentiles. He was around these Gentile Christians. And this was a Christian act. Because re remember, according to, to Jewish law and custom, Jewish people did not eat with Gentiles. They didn't eat Gentile food. They didn't hang out with Gentile people because both were considered unclean. But Peter is a Christian now. He believes the gospel. He believes that everyone is only saved by faith in Jesus, including these Gentile Christians he hung out with. He, he hung out with. So here, a normal day in Antioch was like this. During, in Antioch, during the day, everybody went about their work. They did whatever they did throughout the day. But then at mealtimes, lunch, dinner, at mealtimes, they would all come together it would be Paul and Barnabas and Titus and all the Gentile Christians and Peter. They would come together and they would eat and drink and talk and fellowship. They would spend time together. It was simple and it was glorious. Table fellowship. But then one day, Peter didn't show up for dinner. And... They said, oh, he must, have, he must have something else going on. But then it's the next day, and again, everybody's like, where's Peter? You seen Peter? Anybody seen Peter? Max, have you seen Peter? Where? Has anybody seen Peter? What, what, about, what about Barnabas? Where's Barnabas been? Phyllis, have you seen Barnabas? Peter, but where, where, where are they at? Oh, they, well, okay, maybe they got, maybe they just have, they have that thing, that, they have that thing maybe going on. But see, actually, Paul, he knows what's going on. Look at verse 12. Peter's absence has to do with certain men who came from James in Jerusalem. Because before these certain men came, Peter was hanging out with the Gentile Christians all the time. But now since these certain men came, Peter has stopped. He has drawn back. He has separated himself, verse 12, fearing the circumcision party. Are you tracking with what he's doing there? Now, who are these certain men, and what is this circumcision party? Like Pastor Joe said last week, we're not 100% sure all the details that Paul is writing into. 
But there's enough here and enough that we know historically that we can piece together what's going on. And here it is. At this time, historically, there was a lot of tension between the Romans and and Jewish people. The Romans were the superpower. They ruled the world at this time. And there had been several Jewish revolts against Roman rule. And the Romans, these Gentiles, they had done horrible things to Jewish people. And so in response to that, Jewish people doubled down on their hostility toward Gentiles. And the circumcision party of verse 12, they led that hostility. The circumcision party was made up of Jewish leaders. These are not Christians, okay? These were Jewish leaders, and these Jewish leaders led the way in making sure that all things Jewish and Gentile stay polarized. The circumcision party intensified an us-versus-them mindset in Jerusalem between Jewish people and Gentiles. But then they heard that Jewish Peter, down in Antioch, They heard that Jewish Peter, who now followed Jesus, they heard that he was hanging out with Gentiles. And so these Jewish leaders, this circumcision party, they they go over to James and the other Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and they said, you have betrayed your people. This gospel you preach, it's not the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. This Jesus you embrace He's not the Jewish Messiah, but you're traitors to your heritage. You're traitors. You've betrayed your people. You have joined sides with the Gentile enemy. Do you not know what they've done to us? And of course, James hears this. And James knows this is not good especially in terms of the optics in Jerusalem, because he's trying to win Jewish people to believe in Jesus. James wants Jewish people to be like him and to become Christians. But now this is a problem. This isn't the way. And so James, in Jerusalem, he gets some men together, the certain men of verse 12, and he sends them to Antioch to tell Peter what's going on. He says, hey, go to Antioch, go to Peter, and tell him, hey, You're hanging out with Gentiles is making things really difficult for us here. The the Jewish leaders here, the circumcision party, they are bullying other Jewish Christians. They're bullying us. And they're making it extremely hard for us to evangelize our Jewish kinsmen. And so when Peter hears this from these certain men... Of course he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want his actions to have that kind of effect. And so what does he do? What does does Peter then do? He skipped dinner the next night, right? He didn't come come to lunch. He's He's not here this morning, right? Anybody seen Peter? He's not here. He stopped coming. Peter stopped hanging out with Gentile Christians. And it wasn't just that Peter did this, but Peter influenced other Jewish Christians to do the same. 
Even Barnabas got mixed up in this. Jewish Christians in Antioch stopped having table fellowship with Gentile Christians. Are you tracking with that? Say it again because I want them. Jewish Christians stop hanging out with Gentile Christians. That's the problem. And Paul called what they were doing hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. You not coming to dinner is hypocrisy. And that is what leads us now to the confrontation. So, what's happening? We got a context, we got a conflict. And now we have a confrontation, and that's in verse 11 and then in verse 14. First, in verse 11, Paul tells us that he opposed Peter to his face because Peter stood condemned. And that word condemned simply means he was found guilty. Peter had stopped eating with Gentile Christians, and he was in the wrong for doing that. And so Paul told him, look at verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, Paul mentioned the word hypocrisy in verse 13, but it's here in verse 14 that he explains what this hypocrisy is. And we all know what the word hypocrisy means, right? We all know this word. Hypocrisy is when you say you believe something, but your behavior contradicts it, right? It's you say this, but you live that. And what's implied there is that actions speak louder than words. And so the way that you act will reveal if your convictions are pretense. The way you live is the real measure of what you believe. And so if you say you believe something but don't live it, it means you're lying. It means you're pretending, right? We, we all know what hypocrisy means. We get hypocrisy. We understand hypocrisy. My late grandfather understood hypocrisy. My, my first year of seminary in North Carolina, I only took one class because I worked every day with uh, my dad and my grandfather uh, in my dad's drywall business. And a lot of those days, what I get to do is I would just drive all around Raleigh the different jobs that we were doing. And I got to, I got to, to ride around with my, my grandfather. We called him Papa. And all the times with Papa driving around, I would talk to him about Jesus. And he, my, my Papa had heard the gospel. Man, he had been part of church, in church, different churches. He had been in them his entire life. But his big hangup, was the hypocrisy he had seen in so many so-called Christians. And he had a list of stories. There were all these people that he knew who were part of churches and who claimed the name of Christ. But if you looked at their life, they were no different than anybody else. That's confusing, right? That's confusing. When our conduct does not line up with our confession, it's confusing. 
It's confusing. It's confusing today, and it was confusing in the first century. Peter said that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, and that this salvation is for everyone who believes, Jewish people and Gentiles. We are Christians now. We are one people in Christ. But by not eating with Gentile Christians, he was acting like you have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. See, Peter's behavior was contradicting what he believed and preached because his behavior, motivated by fear and good intentions, it suggested even faintly that you have to keep Jewish law in order to be saved. Because of his behavior, Peter was in the wrong And the turning point here is when Paul confronted him. And this is where we now move from part one to part two. Part one is what's what's happening here. What's this story about? We've seen there's a context, there's a conflict, there's a confrontation. And now that brings us to the second part. Why does this matter? Why does any of this matter to us? Here's why. Paul confronted Peter because his conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel. Or more specifically, it's because Peter was behaving as if you need more than faith in Jesus to be saved. Peter's behavior was undermining the all-sufficiency of Jesus for salvation. And so just let's just say, just categorically, this means it's possible for you, for us, it's possible for us to live in a way that contradicts the gospel. Like Peter did here, you can do things, we can do things that deny the all-sufficiency of Jesus. We can be wrong. Newsflash. We can get it wrong. But also get this. Track with this. If it's possible for us to live in a way that contradicts the gospel and gets it wrong, the converse must also be true. We can get it right. (laughs) We can get it right. Which is why Paul is doing what he's doing here. Hey, it's possible for you, for me, it's possible for us to live in a way that is congruent to the truth of the gospel. We can live in a way that lines up with the all-sufficiency of Jesus for salvation. The word for it is gospel congruence. I like that word. Gospel congruence. Gospel congruence is the way we want to live, right? This is how we want to live. We want to live and we can live in step with the gospel. We can show with our lives that Jesus alone is our salvation. But guess what? We need help from one another. I I think that's the main takeaway for us in Galatians 2. That's the main thing that we take away from The situation here, the confrontation between Paul and Peter, is that gospel congruence is the way we help one another live. That's 
That's the take-home phrase right there I want you to remember. Gospel congruence. Gospel congruence. Living in step with the gospel. Gospel congruence is the way we help one another live. And in closing now, I want to give you three reasons why. And then we're done. Gospel congruence is the way we help one another live. Number one, because it's right. It is right that we live in congruence with the gospel because the gospel is meant to change how we live. The gospel is for all of us head to toe, mind to heart. Every part of who we are is who Jesus came to save because every part of us needs saving. Remember, we're fallen humans. We are sinners who are totally depraved, which means every part of us is broken and we cannot save ourselves. We have to start there. And when we realize that we can't save ourselves and that we need a Savior from outside of us, then we look to the cross. We look to the gospel of Jesus we look to the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus came here to save sinners like us. He walked through life in this world in our shoes. And in all the ways that we have failed, Jesus was perfect. And being perfect, he became a spotless sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross in our place. And he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sins. And he died for us bearing that punishment. The, the, the judgment of God that I deserve for my sins, the judgment of God that was coming at me, Jesus, he took that judgment in my place. Jesus took it instead, and he died, and he was buried, and then on the third day, Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised and ascended victorious over sin and death. By his resurrection, Jesus proved that he has overcome both the power and the penalty of sin. And when we put our faith in him, when we trust him, his victory is applied to us. By faith, we are united to Jesus. And all the favor that God has for his son becomes favor that God has on us. We become the adopted sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing. That's the gospel. And Jesus didn't do that just so we'd agree with it. He did it to change us. To change you. He did it to change every part of who we are. Look, I used to think, I used to think that the biggest problem for the church was behavior. I thought it was a behavior issue. From all those conversations with my papa, I, I thought if Christians could just live right and not be stupid, right? <laughs> I thought the issue was behavior, but it's not. It's not. The issue is that if Christians, if we could just understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we just really understood the gospel that Jesus' love for you is not shallow, but he's saving all of you, he wants all of you. He died for all of you. He will save 
all of you, and that salvation shows up in how we live. That is gospel congruence. That's gospel congruence. That is right. That's what we want. Amen? Gospel congruence is the way we help one another live. Number two is because we can't do it alone. (laughs) We help one another live in gospel congruence because we have to help one another. Remember that when we become Christians, we become part of the family of God. We're part of the church, and we live that out in all of the church's local assemblies, in local churches like this one. And as a church, we are together learning to obey all that Jesus commands us. We're learning together how to follow Jesus on this journey of faith through life in this world. We are all together pilgrims on progress, in progress. Why do you say that? Pilgrim's progress. That's our story. 1678 was when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous books in the world. I talked about it for half an hour yesterday with 50 50 men. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of a Christian's journey of faith. And Christian, that's the main character's name, Christian, he's on a pilgrimage from the city of destruction, which is this world, to the celestial city, which is heaven. And on this journey, Christian experiences all the things that we Christians experience in this world. It is amazing how relevant this book is hundreds of years later. So many things that resonate with us. But what's really part of the genius of the story is that Christian, the main character, does not make the journey alone. Oh, this is so brilliant. At first, he has a friend named Faithful, and is Faithful and Christian traveling together, but then Faithful is martyred at Vanity Fair, in Vanity Fair. And then he has another friend who comes, Hopeful, and Hopeful steps up, and Christian and Hopeful journey together the rest of the way. And at different times on their journey, at different times in the story, they both need each other to remind them of the gospel. It's amazing. They're both at different times correcting and encouraging one another as they journey along toward heaven. And as the church, that's what we're called to do for one another. There will be times on our journey. There will be times on this journey when we are not going to get the gospel there's going to be times when, when we are, are not going to get the gospel and we're going to need our brothers and sisters beside us to remind us, to tell us. We're out of step. Remember the gospel. And there's going to be times when our brothers and sisters get blurry on the gospel. And we have to tell them. We have to remind them of the gospel. We have to show them who Jesus is, reminding them again what the gospel says. We cannot do this alone. Gospel congruence is the way we help one another live because we have to help one another. We have to do it together. Lastly, gospel congruence is the way we help one another live because, three, the truth of the gospel will be preserved. I think there's all kinds of things we can learn here uh, from Paul and Peter when it comes to, you know, our current situations, things that we can apply. But the main way that Galatians 2 is different from any other situation is that the stakes here are uniquely high. 
Peter's hypocrisy was that his conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel, which didn't just undermine what he believed and preached, but it threatened to rip apart the church. Peter's behavior suggested that something more than faith in Jesus is needed for salvation. And if that behavior was left unchecked, it would have created a kind of Jewish syncretism that distorted the message of the gospel. Paul understood how high the stakes were, which is why in verse 5 he said that the, the apostles did not yield to the false teachers even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What is driving Paul more than anything else is the integrity of the gospel. Paul's highest allegiance was to the gospel. And I think the same thing could be said of Peter. Okay, Let's say ten nice things about Peter. All right, You know he's my guy. I love Peter. Thankful for him. Notice in Galatians 2 that Paul doesn't say anything about Peter's response to him. We have no indication anywhere that Paul and Peter argued about this, which means it's best to assume that Peter heard Paul say this to him and he received it. Because his highest allegiance was also to the gospel. Here's how it goes. Paul's highest allegiance was to the gospel, not his ego, So he confronted Peter and risked being disliked. Peter's highest allegiance was through the gospel, not his ego. So he didn't argue or defend himself with Paul, but he accepted that he was wrong and he showed up for dinner that night. Because our brother Paul and our brother Peter, because their highest allegiance was the gospel, God used this confrontation to preserve the truth of the gospel for us. See, Peter and Paul continue to preach the gospel. They continue to preach the truth that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone plus nothing else. And through Paul, the the apostle to the Gentiles, through Paul, that gospel message advanced to the ends of the earth to even here in North America where there's a building with a statue of Paul on it in a city named after him. And look, it's not about Paul, right? I imagine that Paul, if he, when he looks down from the cloud of witnesses and he sees this statue, he probably just face palms, right? <laughs> it's not about Paul. We know it's not about Paul. But Jesus used Paul. Jesus used Paul and Jesus used this moment in Galatians 2 so that we would know the gospel today. So that you would know right now that you are saved and loved by God, not because of your works, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through faith in Jesus. So that's by invitation. If you're here this morning and you're looking everywhere else for salvation, stop, stop. Don't look anywhere else. Look to Jesus alone. You are saved. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing else. And if that's your story, if you embrace that gospel, 
I invite you now to give Jesus thanks at this table. We, we come to this table each week to remember the death of Jesus and to thank him. At the table, the, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus and the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. And as we receive the bread and as we receive the cup, we are saying, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, my hope is in you. My only hope is in you. And so if that's your confession this morning, if you would say that, if you embrace Jesus, if you're united to him by faith, we invite you together, together at this table, let's fellowship, let's eat and drink together. As we serve it, just a reminder, if you prefer grape juice, it's the outer ring. Everything else in the inside is wine. Grape juice is the outer ring. Um, His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.